0: Would you open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 3? We're going to pick up today in verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. You'll remember that uh, Peter is written in three broad sections, separated by the word beloved. So we saw that word in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, and so we're marching through this second section. Now today, we've been, we've been going through these various uh, admonitions and instructions to certain specific groups of people in the church. And now today, Peter actually turns and he speaks to all of us. He says, all of you, at the beginning here. In particular, what Peter wants us to know is how to be blessed by God. So let's pray, and we'll turn to these scriptures. Heavenly Father, your words are sweeter than honey. They're a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And they feed our souls. So Father, this morning, would you feed us with your word? Would you enlighten us with your word? Would you change us by your word? By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you show us how to walk in your ways this morning? We ask all this through Jesus Christ, who is our bread of heaven, who feeds us, who is the word of God himself. We ask in his name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, For the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Christians today throw around the word blessing a lot, um, but I'm not really sure we know what it means. We have a really casual approach to the way that we we use the word blessing. Maybe the two most common places are when people sneeze. Or maybe when you're being a little sarcastic. But in the Bible, blessings are dead serious. And they're dead serious because they're powerful. Blessings, biblically, are effective promises of God's grace and favor. In the Bible, to be blessed means that God is on your side that he'll protect you, and to miss out on blessing is to be separated from God, to be outside of His care. Consider the story of Jacob, Jacob and Esau. We'll return to this story several times today, but a lot of times we focus on the earthly elements of that story. Certainly, Esau missed out on uh, the earthly blessings of being the the prime inheritor of Isaac's wealth. But that's not the the primary central focus of Isaac's blessing on Jacob. God had given Abraham and through his son, Isaac, a covenant. And whichever son, Jacob or Esau, received Isaac's blessing, that son would become the promised son of the covenant. That's why Esau reacts so, so strongly when he realizes that he's lost it. Genesis 27 says... That Esau, this this strong, this powerful man, who's a, a good hunter, he spends his time in the field. When he realizes that he's lost his blessing, he's suddenly reduced to a beggar. Genesis says that he wept bitterly. He cried out and he pleaded with his father to bless him as well. Now, do we have that same concern? Are we interested in the blessing of God? I hope that your answer is yes. I hope that you're seeking God's blessing. But what does that look like? How can I actually be blessed? What does it mean to seek God's blessing? Our passage today in 1 Peter is particularly focused on that, focused on blessing and how we obtain it. Peter calls us to seek blessing through these means. He says, we are blessed through unity, suffering, and proclamation. We are blessed through unity, suffering, and proclamation. So first, we are blessed through unity. Look at verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing." So here, Peter begins to, to sum up. He's, he's already gone through these various groups of people in the church. And now he points to all of us. This is an important question to ask whenever you're studying the Bible. Are you dealing with singular you or plural you? See, in, in English, in modern English, we have one word, singular and plural. That's not the way it is in Greek. And so in this case, we're dealing with you plural through the entire passage. That means that this blessing is corporate. In other words, Peter isn't telling us that karma is real. There's not a one-to-one relationship between your blessing others and your receiving blessing. And be careful if anyone ever tells you that. What Peter is saying is that when you bless, instead of reviling, that you also bless the church. If If we repay evil for evil, we actually demonstrate a lack of brotherly love toward those in the church. We're called as a body of believers to bless that we may obtain as a body of believers a blessing. Now, on the simple level of definitions, to bless someone is to offer them the favor of God. But Peter expands on this idea with a list of five things. Um, In Greek, it's literally five words, but you should be able to see this list in verse 8 in your English Bibles. You should be able to see this structure. So here's the list, and and be looking for that in your Bible. First, single-mindedness, or unity of mind. Second, sympathy. Third, brotherly love. Fourth, compassion. And fifth, humble-mindedness. Those are going to be translated different ways, but you should be able to see those five things. Now, those aren't just simple throwaway words. It's not just kind of piling up stuff on top of you. This is actually really carefully put together. If you look at the first and fifth, they're dealing with the mind. The second and fourth deal with the emotions. In fact, the fourth word, splunchnos, it's an odd word, but it literally means good guts. These are your feelings. And finally, the middle word deals with the will brotherly love. So what Peter's doing at the end, he's he's got the whole person in view. Our mind, our emotions, and our wills. What we think changes how we feel, changes how we live. That's the normal pattern of sanctification. And that's why we always start with right doctrine, by the way. But Peter is calling us to go on this journey of transformation together. Transforming our minds and our hearts and our wills So that we're united in purpose, which ultimately is the glory of God. So, think about Jacob and Esau again. When Peter talks about obtaining a blessing, he's probably actually referring to this episode. Why were Jacob and Esau in conflict? Well, it's because Esau deviated from his calling and his purpose as a son of Isaac, as a son of the covenant. He did not share the mind of his brother. Because Jacob even Jacob, is a flawed character. His name means deceiver. He's, a, he's not the, the perfect uh, covenant son. But Jacob understood who God was and the importance of receiving the covenant blessing. Esau did not. Esau did not have compassion on his brother. Instead, he, he consistently had contempt on his brother. He didn't have good emotions toward him. He had bad emotions toward him. Finally... Esau did not will Jacob's good, which is what love is. To will, to desire the good of another person. All of Esau's actions are self-serving. And his lack of love for Jacob reveals a lack of love in the covenant promises of God. And so he rejected his birthright. And he sold it for a bowl of soup. So what kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be a church that blesses or curses? Are we going to be a church that loves right doctrine? Are we going to be a church that has compassion on one another and our neighbors? Are we going to be a church that demonstrates brotherly love? My prayer is that we will be. Now, I can't make that decision for you. Your elders can't make that decision for you. This is a command to all of us. We're all commanded to bless one another in these things. And we all have to pull in the same direction if we want to obtain the blessing that's promised. We are blessed through unity. Second, we are blessed through suffering. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, whoever, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So verse 10 begins with the word for. Now this lets us know that what we're about to get is connected to what goes before. Namely, what Peter is telling us is what this blessing that we're, we're called to obtain actually looks like. And to do that, he quotes from Psalm 34. And he really gives us a master class in how New Testament Christians should interpret the Old Testament. When David wrote this psalm, David was probably primarily thinking about his immediate needs. He was probably thinking about how to not be killed by the Philistines on one side and by Saul on the other side. He wants a long life and good days on this earth. But Peter actually turns this around. Peter wants us to see that this psalm is not simply about this life, but the life to come. The life that we're to love, as Peter has already laid out in detail throughout the rest of the book, is the life that Christ promises in the gospel. A life in eternity. A life in heaven. Christ is hidden all over the Old Testament, and a proper Christian interpretation sees these things. And if we're looking for Christ in the Old Testament, we will actually find him there because he is there. So, this psalm, which contains the promise of new life, is set in the context of human suffering. And this is a suffering that Peter's audience is always facing. Peter has repeatedly reminded us that Christians are not promised wealth or prosperity or long lives on this earth. What we're actually promised is a hard life, a hard life full of struggle. But that struggle is what ultimately brings eternal blessing. As we struggle together as a body of believers, we're actually being sanctified for this future life and these future good days that we will have after Jesus returns. This was an interesting story I read this week. Uh, Karen Jobes is a professor and she's a a commentator on this passage. But This is a story she told. She said, When I asked students in, in class one day, To come up with specific, practical examples of how someone might bless an adversary. The story was shared of a Christian soldier living in a barracks with his unit. Each evening, when he would read his Bible and pray before going to sleep, he was reviled and insulted by a soldier across the aisle. One night, a pair of muddy combat boots came flying at the Christian. The next morning, the hostile soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, cleaned and polished and ready for inspection. Several soldiers in this company eventually became Christians as a result of the inner strength of the one who could return blessing for insult. Now, it would have been easy for that Christian soldier to throw those boots back across the room, to to throw it back and to to yell and to scream and to respond with reviling. But instead he did good. He showed love toward his reviler. Now, did that Christian soldier gain anything personally from doing that? Uh, Not really. He didn't get any richer. He didn't get any uh, material blessing. I mean, his name isn't even mentioned in this story. But his act of blessing toward his reviling neighbor brought blessing to the whole church. The church was actually enlarged. People became Christians. Christians. Because of what he did. How do we respond to those who seek to harm us? Because that that reveals the kind of inheritance we're seeking. If we love life, and if we seek good days, if we seek peace, that will express itself in our everyday actions. When we give ourselves fully to God's kingdom, we have no fear of those who can hurt us now. Instead, we have compassion on them. We love them. We do good to them. And that way, our suffering actually brings blessing on the church. It sanctifies her, and it prepares her for the final day of the Lord. If our focus is eternal, it gives meaning to our suffering. And it makes our suffering a vehicle for blessing. We are blessed through suffering. Third, We are blessed through proclamation. Look at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, I imagine at some point you may have memorized uh, verse 15. It's a common kind of VBS verse. Most commonly, it's used as kind of a proof text for formal apologetics, for debating atheists in the town square. Now, I think that's a perfectly legitimate use of this passage, but not all of us are called to do that. Not all of us are called to debate. Not all of us are called to formal apologetics. In fact, I I would probably say that that's a calling that's only really found in a handful of people. Probably none of us in this room are called to that particular thing. But this passage isn't just addressed to those people. It's actually addressed to the whole church. So what does that have to do with us? What does it mean for us? Well, there are two things to think about. First, our heart in proclamation. And second, the hope we proclaim. Peter tells us to honor Christ in our hearts as holy. He tells us to speak with gentleness and respect. And that actually echoes language from his admonition to wives, by the way. It tells us to have a a clear conscience before God. This is really easy to miss because we get focused on this defense thing. But the central command in the passage, the thing that we're actually called to do first and foremost, the, the do this part of the verse, is not to defend the faith. The central do this part of the verse is to honor Christ. Now, there are lots of people that have gotten famous for their apologetics, for their defense of the faith, for their evangelism. And we also applaud those people for their strong stands on orthodoxy and biblical truth. But the temptation is always to fall to divisiveness and contentiousness. You've seen this kind of person before. It's the kind of person who's very quick to divide over small issues. They don't place the priority on main things. Instead, everything is on an equal level of equal importance in their minds. Just one example from Presbyterian history. In the 1930s, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a body that still exists today, was formed in response to liberalism in the Northern Presbyterian Church at the time. And they did that for good reasons. Some of these men have been, uh, their credentials as ministers have been revoked for their stands in Orthodoxy. And so in 1936, they formed this new denomination. And I think that was probably the right thing to do. But one year later, in 1937, that new small denomination actually divided again. This time it wasn't over essentials of the faith. Instead, it was over the question of alcohol and the end times. What had started as a bold stand for truth fell into divisiveness and contentiousness. And that's the temptation that we all face in our defense of the faith. But we have to remember that the first priority, the first goal, is to honor Christ. And our hearts is holy. The defense of the faith is supposed to be a blessing to the church. But if we fail in the basics of humility, in the basics of gentleness, we can actually end up causing the church damage. That might look like fighting over minor issues, or it may simply be an arrogant and unwelcoming tone toward unbelievers. When we take vows of membership, which many of you have taken in this church, One of the things we promise is to promote the unity, purity, and peace of the church. That's three things. We want to be pure, we want to be right, we want to have pure doctrine and pure piety before God. But that demand for purity does not entitle us to have a contentious spirit. We're also called to unity and peace. That's our heart and proclamation. The second thing we need to look at is what this hope in you is. Now, remember, this whole passage is addressed to all of you, the whole church. So to to phrase that slightly differently, we may say, uh, we could call it, we could say the hope among us, the hope that we all share. Peter's referring to that shared hope, the thing that we have in common. Well, what is that hope? Remember Psalm 34, the quotation there. The hope that we have is a long life, and good days that's eternal life in the kingdom of God so the key thing that you need to understand is that these are objective tangible realities I was reading an article recently on evangelism and I don't know if you've ever has anybody ever had a Mormon come to your door maybe but if you talk to a Mormon they'll tell you that the way you know their book is true is a burning in the bosom. Now that's really easy to laugh off. But how many, how many times do we do the same thing? It's this purely internal feeling. So often, when we pitch our faith to other people, when they ask for the reason for the hope in us, what do we talk about? We talk about how great our community is. We talk about how, how good it is that our children get good morals. We talk about how Jesus makes us feel. Now, those are all good things, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be thinking about those things, but they all miss the point. All of these things are the benefits we get in Christ, but none of them is Christ's self. If you want a good community, if you want good morals, if you want to feel good, you can go to the Rotary Club and get the same thing there. The only thing that, that we have, the only thing that we can offer to the world is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who took on flesh to die and to rise again and to bring us new life. That's the hope that's in us. That Jesus Christ will actually save us from sin and death. Now, I don't know where this maxim originates, but I think it's true. What we win people with is what we win people to. What we win people with is what we win people to. So often, churches go to ridiculous lengths to get the world through the doors. Some churches do smoke and light shows. Some churches pander to political parties. Some churches neuter their doctrine and don't talk about controversial things to make it palatable to the world. But is that biblical? Is that what God calls us to do? Church, if if we want to be blessed... Particularly if we want to be blessed to see people coming to faith in our midst. We have to give them the only thing that we can actually offer. And that's Jesus Christ. What we win people with is what we we win people to. So let's win people with Christ. Who suffered and died for us. And let all those other things pass away. We are blessed through proclamation. Now to return once again to to Jacob and Esau. Esau despised his blessing. But Jacob sought after it. Toward the end of his life, Jacob was preparing uh, to face Esau after many years. Remember that Jacob runs away. He goes to Laban's house and marries his two daughters. But now, in his old age, Jacob is going back to meet Esau. And before he crosses the river to meet Esau, the night before he does that, Jacob wrestles with God. At the end of the wrestling match, God told Jacob to give up. But Jacob wouldn't let go. He said, I'm not going to let go unless you bless me. Do we desire blessing like that? Are we willing to cling to God in the face of all adversity? If we are, then God blesses us. He gives us a new heart and a new life in Christ. When God blessed Jacob, Jacob spent the rest of his life with a limp. And that limp became a visible sign of God's blessing on his life. For us, we know that we're blessed when we're unified in love. We know that we're blessed when we suffer together. We know that we're blessed when God's name is defended in our midst against attractors. If we want to be a blessed people, And we need to seek those things. So cling to God, not just as individuals, but together as a body. Cling to his church and his people. Seek her unity, her purity and peace as your vows remind you. Defend his name and seek to suffer together well. Do this and we will obtain his blessing as his people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son,